Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's guest is one of my dearest friends in the old-time community, Jake Blunt. And this is his second appearance on Get Up in the Cool. I love having Jake on the show because he's an incredible musician, and he's uniquely insightful and sometimes incisive about the roots of this music and the way people perceive it and the discrepancies between the two. Jake actually throws a lot of shade in this interview, which is an interesting choice considering... He's on the show to promote his new EP with Tatiana Hargreaves, no big deal, and some of the things he says might make his audience a little defensive, but every grievance Jake expresses is matched and exceeded with this effusive gratitude and humility, which he articulates just as eloquently. So I'm going to go ahead and encourage you to adopt an open posture while listening to this, because the things Jake has to say are things we need to hear, and no one is going to communicate them as clearly or as gracefully as he does. If you can do that, you will be touched by this music in the way it's intended, which is to bring joy through discomfort. Stick around after the interview, and I'll give you a sneak peek at Jake's new EP. You don't want to miss it. Here's my wonderful conversation with Jake Blunt, who I like a lot. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Indian on a Stump. Yes. What, uh, do you know where that title comes from? Uh, it's a Balfa tune. It's actually a Cajun tune. Um, oh, it sounds kind of Cajun. I, I learned it from that tune, that CD, Banging and Sawing, the Bob Carlin CD, and yeah. it was already old-timed up on that, and then I just learned it that way. Thanks for old-timing that Cajun tune for us. Bob Carlin and whoever was playing fiddle. Nameless, but very good fiddle player. Is it a nameless, but very... It's, that CD is just, it's listed as by Bob Carlin online, okay. and yeah. I don't have a physical copy, yeah. so they're like guest fiddlers on it, okay. but each track is a different guest fiddler, gotcha. and I don't know who any of them are. So it's definitely a Bob Carlin record. I haven't heard of it. People just talk about it all. I mean, I've heard of it. I haven't heard it myself. It's good. It's good. It's Banging worth a buy. That's all we're doing here. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Pull, pull that pull that mic back up. Yeah, good. Uh, welcome back to Get Up in the Cool, Jake Blunt. Thank you. Yeah, for welcoming me back. <laughs> we don't have a like specific agenda today. This is just like a catch-up episode. It's the day of uh, Brandywine. We're about to go to the Brandywine Revival Festival. Ooh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Walt. Thanks, Claire. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good party, and uh, I just wanted to just do a little 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 pre-party here. So, uh, you have a bunch of really interesting tunes uh, that you brought. A lot of them have like kind of crazy little key changes and like chord choices and uh, I feel like uh, so you, how long have you been playing fiddle now? Um, little under three years? A little under three years. I feel like your tastes have like broadened a lot in like the last year since I, I would hope so. Yeah. Not just like playing Hangman's Reel eight times <laughs> yeah. every day. Um. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, your the tunes you were interested in like a year ago were like all of these sort of like obscure sort of modal ambiguous harmony kind of like circular tunes and now you're pulling out all these tunes that are still obscure and modal but they're just like <laughs> they're they're making me think a lot more hey that one wasn't modal no <laughs> It's not crazy obscure, but it's no, also, I think, the only one that those statements apply to on this list. So. Yeah, they're, it's about to get a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, what have, you, what have you been up to in the last last year? You got your degree. Yes. You got that paper. I graduated from college. I got my nice $250,000 receipt. Um, and, jeez um, Louise, it was... It was a good time. I'm just bitter about money. Um, (laughs) The curse of our generation. But it's okay because you got a degree in ethnomusicology. Exactly. So you're just going to make it up a couple years. Yeah. Then you'll be back to... (laughs) Yeah. Just hang out for a couple years, then go spend more money. It's going to be great. (laughs) Um, I'm looking forward to the academic side of that, though. Um, Yeah. It's going to be good to, when I do go to grad school, be able to really devote time to the things that... I really care about and want to be studying. And uh, I was fortunate. My college, uh, Hamilton College, does a really good job of facilitating students' individual interests. So I was able to do all sorts of cool things like study off campus for two semesters and intern in the Department of Musical Instruments at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and um, do my thesis on old-time music in Ithaca, New York. So I have... All these super fun and cool things that I got to do um, over the course of that time it was not all roses by any means, but I had I had a fruitful college experience, I would say. Yeah, and I'm excited to be done to have the piece of paper and 
to be on to the next thing. It's exciting. It's also really stressful, but I'm not dealing with it right now. So, yeah, it's it's where we're at. Yeah, this is, uh, for those of you who don't know what Brandywine is, is how long have you been out of of school now? Like a month. A month, yeah. So, you're still just chilling out before the existential dread of being a post- yeah, I have a plan, sort <laughs> yeah. of. I know where I'm going to live. I don't know what I'm going to do there. So yeah. we'll we'll find out. Right on. So uh, you wrote your thesis on Ithaca. Fiddling specifically or just old time in general in Ithaca? Just old time music. Yeah. As in general. Yeah. In ge- I thought it was, but in Ithaca, right? That's like yes. the focus? Yes. Yeah, what a... What, what, in your thesis, is there like an argument that you're making or are you just sort of... Has anyone done that before with Ithaca Old Time? So there are articles on it, yeah. um, mostly in like local newspapers and stuff, because uh, it is really kind of an interesting thing that this like old time Appalachian scene would sprout up out of nowhere in the middle of the Finger Lakes. But um, essentially, uh, I'm I think the first one to write academically about it in depth. Although I think there are a number of different things that kind of touch on yeah. the substance of it. Like uh, John Specker is one of the founders of what came to be known as the Ithaca Sound, and he's featured in Music for the Sky, that Vermont fiddling documentary. Um, there's a documentary in the works uh, about the Highwood String Band, who are credited as like the founders of the old time yeah. scene there. And Walt, I think, is also coming out with a book soon. Okay. So there's going to be there's going to be some good stuff that's out. But I think I'm the only one who's written the academic treatise on yeah on the Ithaca Sound. So what like separates Ithaca Sound from uh, the rest of old time? Like, see, that's a difficult thing to do, just because the rest of old time is so much yeah. and it changes so often. And most of the things that I find to be elements of the Ithaca sound that I consider signature parts appear in other places, but not necessarily in the same combination. Um, So the Ithaca sound started in the 1970s, um, really the 1960s almost. Um, Walt Koken moved up there and wound up in a band called the Busted Toe Mud Thumpers. And they were it the like old, a band he would he would be in. It's, it sounds like an old time band, yeah. you know. I feel like it's a rule that our band names just can't make sense. I don't know what it's about. I mean, I'm in the Moose Whisperers. I can't I can't argue with anyone about it. But uh, oh, that's another thing that happened. Yeah, your uh, your old time band won the first place at Clifftop. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. Um, it was fun. Yeah, it, it was, was fun really to watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys sounded awesome. Yeah, those are awesome dudes. Um, yeah. It's really fun to be playing with them, just like the Ithaca musicians. Yeah. <laughs> Segway back. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, <laughs> I, I gotta brag about you a little bit. So, well, yeah. thank you. I yeah. appreciate it. Um, yeah. So he wound up in this band called the Busted Toe Mud Thumpers with uh, guys named George Dorian and Bob Pine. And uh, he was playing banjo with them. And they played around and went around the country a little bit. And at one point, they wound up out in California, where he met uh, Mac Benford and, I believe, Bob Potts. I haven't read over my thesis since I turned it in, so <laughs> my details may be a little shoddy. But given time, uh, they got together as the Fat City String Band uh, with Doug Dorshug and Jenny Cleland as a rhythm section added on uh, later in time. And um, eventually, when they got picked up by the Smithsonian uh, Folklife Festival and other places, they wound up changing their name to the Highwood String Band yeah. uh, because of a copyright dispute 
uh, or a trademark dispute, I guess, if it's a name. Um, and they wound up hosting three parties in the mid-70s that drew tons of people to Ithaca just to come visit These them. one-time parties? They do annual parties. Annual parties, yeah. So um, they did three of them. And at those parties were Judy Hyman and Jeff Klaus, who had become members of the Horseflies, yeah. who are probably the most well-known in the current generation, old-time Ithaca band, although I don't think they see themselves as old-time anymore. Um, and a bunch of other people who realized, wait, this area, is, this area is beautiful, land is cheap, there are a ton of places to go play gigs, yeah. I should move here. So a lot of them did, and you wound up with this really nice, vibrant old-time community there because there were venues and dance clubs and people who were really investing in that music and a bunch of young people grew up in it yeah uh and those are you have uh the henry brothers uh you have richie stearns uh the Pereer brothers who would go on to form donna the buffalo in addition to the bubba george string band with richie um and agents of tara once tara nevins uh came to the area and um, then other people started to be drawn to it. Uh, you're talking about Judy Hyman, Jeff Klaus, people like that. And um, the Correct Tone String Band moved in from Boston, and they brought this really strong backbeat to the Ithaca sound. And I talk about in my thesis kind of six red flags. I call them red flags, the Ithaca sound. Um, and... Um, <laughs> The first one is this kind of short bow fiddling style, uh, this saw stroking, I guess, and that starts really with Bob Potts. Um, I interviewed Judy Hyman about it, and she talked about the Highwoods being uh, where she first heard that approach, and I talked to Walt, and he said, well, I didn't do that, but I think Bob did sometimes, and I talked to Bob, and Bob said, I don't know what I was doing. Yeah. So it sounds like it was Bob, but no, no definitive answer there. Um, so he introduced that, and then the correct tones came along and introduced this big backbeat, this emphasis on the twos and fours, because John Specker, their fiddler, had this huge reggae influence. So he brought that to the table, and um, it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, Richie Stearns developed this really unique improvisational uh, banjo style that kind of brings in a bit of that reggae sensibility, but also a lot of rock and roll, and kind of reaches out to the banjo's African roots in a very new kind of way. We're not talking, you know, digging back to pre-minstrel banjo or something yeah. like that. Uh, very much a modern sensibility of yeah. reclaiming the Africanisms. And then people started writing original tunes. I consider that another yeah. red flag because it has its own repertoire to an extent. Um, and then banjo uke makes an appearance. Uh, and that's kind of become... The, the trademark, I yeah. feel like. You can identify people at festivals based on that, like, waka, 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 <laughs> banjo youth thing going on. So this really unique, cool way of playing developed, and people are starting to, you know, grow up in that. People have grown up in that. I mentioned Pereers and Henrys and Richie Stearns before, but you've got younger folks like uh, Lydia Garrison Damiano, um, Cap Cook, Joe Hayward, uh, Aaron Lip. There's a bunch of really talented musicians over there, um, and it's a really different take on the music, and I learned a lot of what I learned from yep. Southwestern Virginia fiddlers and North Carolina fiddlers, and interestingly, 
the connection between the Lexington crowd and the Ithaca crowd at the time when the style was forming was really strong. Oh. And the people who wound up being formative in that style were really most influenced by North Carolina and Georgia fiddlers. So I, after I started learning and going to Tommy Gerald and, you know, all these old folks that, that you think of uh, as the iconic old time fiddlers, I started to become aware of the difference and that there was something else going on. Yeah. And I learned to play at my college, which is about two hours east of Ithaca in Clinton, New York. Uh, and I started digging into that. And that's how I wound up investigating the Ithaca sound. Right on. And so I, you also mentioned uh, that, so I think this ties in. You mentioned that you have feelings and opinions yeah. about Northerners engaging with uh, Appalachian music. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit, especially how that relates to, like, you know, you obviously, you like the Ithaca sound enough to, like, spend enough time to write a thesis on it. Mm -hmm. So you might have maybe some complicated feelings, but overall, like, it's something that you wanted to spend time thinking about and listening to and transcribing, you know, fiddling. Yeah, for like hours, so or days, and so. Yeah, what what do you think is the like respectful way for Northerners or non-Appalachian folks to engage with music? Well, I think defining that definitely is up to Appalachian people, and yeah. I don't want to engage it engage in that as someone who like has the answers, but right. as someone who's been in the conversation a lot, because yeah. I think a lot of people have reacted and really displeased ways to me having spent time doing an academic investigation of Ithaca um, I think I'm suited to regurgitate things I guess yeah. um, and I guess one of the reasons why I find the Ithaca sound so compelling is that there is a very direct connection between the southern style and between what they're doing yeah. and it comes out sounding very different especially when you get to the newer horseflies material where there's all these synthesizers and things going on yeah they really push it and after a certain point judy hyman told me we're, we'd stopped being an old-time band yeah um so i think there's an acknowledgement there that there is a barrier and that yeah. you can cross the line um and I think what I found compelling about this is that there's this group of musicians who changed so much from the way the original field recordings were played and yet were insistent at every point during my interviews on saying we have this extremely deep and profound respect for yeah. the Southern tradition and we don't at all mean to demean the way that they're doing it yeah. or to replace it. Yeah. This is just our own thing. Yeah. So I view the Ithaca sound as a regional style, like you would consider West Virginia fiddling yeah. or, you know, if you're getting really into a different counties in West Virginia yeah. um, as having their own styles. I don't consider it necessarily a replacement or a transgression or whatever, but I do think that a lot of people are upset by it. And curiously, in talking to people, I found that most of those folks are Northerners. Yeah. I have met maybe two Southerners who've ever had objection to it, and it's because they feel like um, folks have prioritized Northern old-time musicians over Southerners, which I do think is true. I mean, you look at the people who are touring internationally and, yeah. you know, 
making the big bucks at it and who are the big names in the business, there are obviously a lot of really talented Appalachian people who are doing that. But there are also a lot of people who are from like upstate New York or Massachusetts or whatever. What does it mean that the Berkeley old time music program is in Boston and the teachers are in Boston? Um, I do think that's something that warrants looking into. uh, And I do think that indicates maybe a questionably ethical shift in our community's priorities. Right. But I also think I haven't heard nearly as much objection to original takes on the music. Obviously, at a certain point, you do... um, You draw perilously near to being disrespectful if you change things too much with too little uh, concern for what things originally sounded like. But I think I've been confused by the Northern response, um, which is very much, it has to be played the way that Tommy played it or whoever. When, you know, I look at this, I'm, you know, I haven't been playing for the fiddle for that long, whatever, but I could never play like Tommy Gerald played. Like, I'd love to. Believe yeah. me, I would love to play just like Tommy, but it's not going to happen. So <laughs> right. for me, you know, it's important that I I do go through the old field recordings. I totally, yeah. you know, whip out Tommy bowing patterns all the time because I think they rock. I think it sounds really good. But I also don't see a problem with getting it from other places. And what I think is interesting is that we have this really, like, strict traditionalist perspective that I think a lot of times is convergent with this total disdain for Appalachian people. Yeah. And I think I heard one story recently that really got on my nerves about a guitar class my friend was in where the teacher was talking about minor six chords and how he didn't think they were part of the tradition. I'm not going to get into all that or whatever because I'm not a guitar player. I don't know. I haven't looked at it. But he said it basically by saying... Appalachian people did this, and then hippie people came in with their intellectual chords, or their smart chords, or something along those lines. I think there's this this tendency that we have to refer to the originators of the tradition as having been, like, too stupid to, to make... know what a minor chord is. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm sure that they knew. They may have decided not yeah, to play but... one, but I think in, you know, that goes into intonation and everything as well. I think uh, a lot of northern people who are very strict traditionalists about bowing pattern for instance, play everything with violin intonation. And, you know, if you are are a violinist, then that's what's natural for you. Do it. But at the same time, I don't think it's necessarily right to assume that Ed and Hammonds just couldn't hear a third. Right. You know, maybe he was playing it in between on purpose. Or a seventh, for that matter. Maybe it's just a little sharp, because it was supposed to be. Yeah. Um... I think we have this kind of conflicting sense of we have to do it just like they did, but this really patronizing, like they did it because they weren't smart enough to do it like we would. Yeah. And this especially has gotten bad for me after the election. Yeah. And this is like driven me crazy, right? Because there's all this like focus on the hillbilly problem and like <laughs> Appalachia and yeah. how they're, you know, the hotbed of Trump support. When like you look at it, the rural vote is not that big of a portion of the voting populace. The average Trump voter is college educated and earns more than the average Clinton or Sanders supporter. Like, these are not the people who are to blame for this problem. And I think I get really frustrated on a personal level as a 
multiracial black person uh, when people draw on these kind of reductive views of Appalachia as this hotbed of racism and xenophobia when absolutely that's there. I'm not going to say that those attitudes don't right. exist. Yeah. Um, but A, are these really demeaning and cruel ways of talking about Appalachian people helping black or queer or Latinx or Asian Appalachian people? Yeah. Or are they just getting thrown under the bus at the same time? Yeah. Are we being critical of ourselves in the same way? Because if you look at mass incarceration rates, for, for example, there are two Appalachian states that are above average. Almost all of them are below average. I think Kentucky and Georgia are the only two that are above yeah. the national average in terms of the rate at which they incarcerate black people. You look at the top ten blackest states in the country, and seven of them are in Appalachia. Yeah. I mean... I think we have a tendency to synonymize Appalachia with whiteness, and then given the results of this election and this kind of vilifying of white working class people as racist, but, you know, I always tell people I've had vastly more trouble in upstate New York and Pennsylvania than I had when I was in West Virginia for three months. Yeah. And that's not to say that it doesn't happen there, of course, but... I just it's it's driving me crazy, man. I have all these friends. Frederick Douglass said the same thing. (laughs) You know, it's it's been known within communities of color that you know in the South people will say it to you, and in the North they think it about you. Yeah, and to me, that hasn't even held true. I mean. I obviously have a totally different experience as someone who's not from Appalachia. Walking in, I walk in with a certain degree of, I think, privilege associated with my geographic origin and with my socioeconomic status. Um, So I don't know what it's like to be like an Appalachian black person. I don't know what that experience looks like. I've talked to people about it, but I will never understand it. I just think this is, this is me as a northerner, like coming to get my people and saying, you know, we have the problem too. And I totally think this is, just a manifestation of like the northern white populace's tendency to just shove the blame off on other people and it's it just drives me nuts to have these people just burglarize appalachian culture while demonizing it exactly like do you like the people or do you not and if you don't like them why do you feel entitled to their music yeah it's the exact same thing to me as you know when um when Black Lives Matter got really, really big back a couple years ago, you have all these white pop stars who got rich selling black music. How many of them had shit to say about that? Yeah. And this is exactly how I feel. Like, how many people know that there's evidence now, there's an NPR story about this, that black, black lung cases in, in Appalachia have been vastly underreported that they're reporting 97 cases in the last decade. It's looking more like 947 or something like that. I mean, there are huge systemic injustice issues relating to Appalachia. Appalachians are an ethnic minority in this country and it doesn't get talked about that way. But you know, if you're going to talk about appropriating from other people we also have to have the conversation about appalachia and about like northerners tendencies to demean people even as they kind of worship the tradition and their tendencies to like use appalachian old people as like 
cartoon repertoires or like wellsprings of authenticity rather than human right. beings. Like they're not there to give you the authentic Appalachian experience. They're like people doing their thing and yeah. be friends with them. Don't like go take things. Yeah. It, I, oh, it just drives me nuts. So yeah, that's where I was. <laughs> <laughs> Man, there's so much there. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of good um, material out there from actual Appalachian people on this. Yeah. You know, I use this platform to to make those points as someone who feels like, you know, I have the privilege to be taken yeah. seriously because yeah. I talk how I talk and I know yeah. who I know in this community. But, you know, if you want to hear what the experience is like and how people really feel about being demeaned. I mean, look it up. There's been so many articles about how liberals are talking about Appalachia in the Trump era yep. and what that does for us and what that does to Appalachian people. Yep. Um, I think those are super important for all of us to be reading. If we're going to be taking people's music, uh, we at least have to be advocating for them as human beings and yep. treating them that way. Do you know that meme going around where it's like it has like four sort of like it's like a science special on neurology kind of like photos yes where, where it's like uh the glowing brain it's got a glowing brain yeah. and then it's sort of like a zoomed in with more detail and then it has just like a like cosmic like yeah, brain explosion thing brain yeah. explosion i feel like you just hit all of those like at the top is like don't shame me for playing a minor six chord and at the bottom is just like, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, that's, I don't know how to summarize that. That's like, that's so much to chew on. There's like a lot yeah. to be talked about there. And I think it's a discussion that's been neglected for entirely too long. And that's part of the cause. But on the score of memes, there is, there's a Facebook group called Weird Appalachia yeah. that I'm a part of. That I just personally, you know, it's like a, it's a space for Appalachian people, and I think pretty pretty often Appalachian leftists to like yeah. talk about representation and issues like that. I just go in there and look. I never post anything because it's not for me. Yeah, that yeah. place doesn't exist for me. They're not there to teach me things. I just go and from their dialogue with one another, I can see the frustrations that yeah. people are having and try to amend my behavior. Um, but I think, you know, even as I call out every northerner to examine our own ways of engaging with the tradition, we also have to be willing to call out each other. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But, you know, fight for justice on every front. Yeah. <laughs> Word. Let's play snowshoes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, quick tuning break. All right. Snowshoes. Potatoes again? Yeah.
what a bonkers tune. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some birds were getting into either having a good time or having a bad time. I couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, John Ashby. Yeah. And the Free State... Free State Ramblers. Free State Ramblers. So uh, we were talking about John Ashby because he does the tune Gone to the Free State. Yeah. And I guess we had both assumed that that referred to like uh, a non-slavery state. Yeah. But you actually did a little bit of research. Yeah. So the Field Recorders Collective has like a really comprehensive article online about the Ashby family uh, because they're still playing music. Um, And essentially what happened was back in like 1806, um, the... uh, the area where the Ashby family lived, uh, their land was purchased from the original, like, British lord who had owned it, uh, and I think it was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, got it, and, um, he went to collect rent from them, uh, because, you know, they're, like, leasing the land or whatever, and they said no, and, uh, selected a king, and became the free state. And the king was John Ashby's uncle. So John Ashby is like royalty, playing free state royalty <laughs> tunes. And apparently it was like 25 years, and then they lost in court and became part of the U.S. Yeah. And they're Marshall County, I think, now. Um, but yeah, it's just... You don't find stories like that about yeah. tunes every day. So <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, okay, um, we got to get to see play this Sally Ann. Yeah. All right. Birchfield, Sally Ann? Yeah. All right.
Yeah. That is such a good tune. That's very, very good. <laughs> Thank you, Brian Vollmer. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple tunes left. Yeah. Uh, the next one we're going to play is Georgia Bells. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it's from Manko Sneed. Yes. And your new EP coming out with Tatiana Hargraves. Tatiana Hargreaves. Hargreaves? Oh my goodness. I should ask her name. <laughs> is she from Oregon? Yes. It's all these awesome old time people from Oregon. I didn't know when I was living there. Because I heard, I think Alex Hargraves, Greaves, is yeah. brother. Older yeah. brother? Older brother, yes. Older brother, yeah. Very cool. Anyway, you guys have an, have an EP coming out. What's the name of the EP? It's called Reparations. Oh my god! So technically, <laughs> yes. it's actually it's actually my EP yes. with Tatiana. Okay, excuse me. We were adv- adamant that that she was adamant that this be the way that it be presented if it was going to be called Reparations, because obviously yes. the optics of a white artist selling an EP called Reparations are yeah. not Tatiana is white. Great. Yes, and I am not. Yeah. So yes. It is Jake Blunt with Tatiana Hargreaves. Yeah. Um, reparations. And um, the... Uh, That's such a badass title for an EP. That's yeah. awesome. For an old-time EP. Yeah. So why is it called that? It is called that um, for a number of reasons. For one thing, um, because so many of my uh, white friends kind of came through for me on this project. Tatiana, of course, being one of them. And... Um, I've been really impressed. Uh, she and I first met at this camp called Falling Waters. It's over in Ithaca. And she brought me out when she was presenting her thesis uh, at her school to kind of co-lead this workshop on the racial history of old-time music. Yep. And I was just really impressed by like her depth of knowledge on the subject and her commitment to like bringing that conversation to the fore, even <clears throat> though you know it doesn't directly involve yep. her. She could get away with not doing it. Um, and I guess I kind of saw this as her taking out the time to come over and help me out with, this was also for school for me. Yeah. So um, to kind of sort of return the favor, but really do a lot more in my mind because yep. she committed so much time and so much effort to learning these tunes and playing them in uh, really amazing ways as she does. Um, so for me, it was kind of out of, respect and acknowledgement to her to my friend abby who's working on the album artwork um for coming through and helping me out with this to bring these tunes um back back into circulation yeah. uh, some of them already are in circulation uh, and i should be clear about that yeah. um but uh all of them are from black or native american artists um and Essentially, we've got some from Mango Sneed. Uh, we've got Gribble Lusk and York, uh, who are off that uh, iconic Altamont CD. Yeah. Um, and we have this one that we're really excited about called The Rabbit that's double fiddle. Um, and it's by, from this dude named Teodar Jackson, who's from Texas. And so far as we know, no other living artists have recorded this tune. No way. I got the field recording from a guy after Clifftop uh, last year. And I think the Field Recorders Collective is going to be publishing them soon, but I don't think they have yet. Yeah. Um, so we really went through this uh, this tune, The Rabbit, with fine-tooth comb. And 
got tried to get you know every little note right yeah. and tried to transition between the parts at the right spots because it doesn't have a regular structure um so we really had to just kind of non-verbally communicate the whole time and hope that it worked yeah uh i think that took more takes than anything else we did um but we're really excited about that i think it's fantastic uh what we turned out i'm so grateful to her for helping me out on this project and um you know, to my college for making it possible. There's just, you know, so many things came through for yeah. me. And I guess the other facet of this, um, of the name is that I'm one of very few black people, um, who's making old time music right yeah. now. And, um, and, Native and you're, American and you're too. also, yeah. I mean, that's a complicated situation for my family, but, um, yes. Um, I don't think we have the time to go okay. into that right yeah. now. It's truly a long story. Um, Next episode three with you. Yeah. Yes. Um, when we're doing all mango tunes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's there's a whole whole discussion of things that we need to talk about. Um, but basically, yes. Um, so for me to be one of the few people who's out there, um, reparations, in as much as it's an acknowledgement of the friends who's helped me out, it's a call for the community yeah. to reinvest uh, in restoring the historical legacy of yeah. people of color in this music and restoring the community to its former diversity. I mean, I find it kind of staggering yeah. that over the past two centuries, old time has probably gotten less diverse than it originally was. Yeah. Um, and I think that that indicates there's an optics issue. There's something visually about our community that doesn't seem welcoming. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm inside it. I know that that's not the case, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. And I think it's important for the community, if we want to benefit from a broader diversity of voices and perspectives and tunes, yeah. to invest in the people who are here. Whether that's me yeah. or the Chocolate Drops or Jillian McCommons. There's and the whole like idea of reparations is not like you like sort of lay an offer on a table. You do something extra. Yeah outside of what you normally do outside of the normally expected behavior of an individual or of a system like so yeah in order to like restore the diversity to the old time community like whatever whatever would need to happen would have to be very intentional yeah like not just implicitly welcoming but like explicitly working super super hard yeah yeah and i think obviously there's a a line there because if it seems like you're trying too hard then it's off-putting you know uh-huh. <laughs> um and that's like a really complicated thing i yep. don't think there's a simple answer to it and i think certain people are just going to be um enthusiastic about or put yes. off by different amounts of commitment as far as that goes but yeah. i also like the idea of calling this reparations uh because I think it expands the definition of the term beyond money. I yeah. think when we hear reparations, we immediately go, oh, giving money to people. And for me, obviously, there's a lot of people in this country who need money, and a lot of yes. them are black. Like, that is real. Yeah. Uh, and that's totally a manifestation of systemic racism and something that could be addressed through something like reparations. But in the meantime, I'm also aware that a lot of people who are really inclined to support justice initiatives and try to better people's lives may not be in a position to provide financial reparations for yeah. people. So my take 
on that title is really that, you know, I have these friends who made artistic contributions yep. to making this possible. I have an institution yep. that helped make this possible. I have friends who are spreading the word about it through their podcasts yep. or who are going to buy the CD or who are going to get the files from me if they can't afford it because I'm willing to do that for people yep. and spread the file you know, spread the files around, show them to people. And hopefully, I mean, at the end of the day, for me, this is not about the financial reparations and the financial gain. I just want these tunes back out there because they're great. And I feel as someone who is a black and native person whose family is from Southern Virginia, you know, my grandparents didn't know that we were involved in this music up until, you know, they were middle-aged. Yeah. There's there's a whole part of our culture that has disappeared, and a yeah. lot of that has to do with urbanization, it has to do with minstrel shows. We got into that a little bit in the last podcast, yeah. I think. But, you know, it's restoring something to people. I think rural black America right now is kind of in an awkward position because the black narrative is the narrative of the inner city right now. And people don't realize that there's a whole other part of our community, that the roots of our community is in the rural south for the most part. That's where we were brought. That's where so much of our family history still is. So for me, it's reclaiming that history, having friends support me in doing so in whatever way they're able to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I just, yeah, I, uh, once again, I just, every word that comes out of your mouth, I just like, I just have strong feelings about strong, positive feelings. That's good. Or if they're negative, they're like, not at you, but just like, I always feel stirred up after I talk to you. you Would you say that Black Creek constructive bummers? Constructive so bummers. Yeah, that's my that's my my mo. Oh man, yeah, but hey, I'm out here like fighting people today. Come on the show. How are you going to respect the tradition without respecting the tradition bearers? That's true. There's some constructive bummers on the I don't, reparations. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, sorry, everybody. I'm not this pugilistic in everyday life. No, here's the thing. I think. <laughs> I think you are one of the the level of, of uh, intensity that you feel about these things. I think you are among the more graceful. And I don't think anyone's entitled to you being graceful about this sort of stuff. But I sure am grateful <laughs> to have you in my life as a person who has such strong, thoughtful uh, opinions and um, about these things, but who also is willing to like... Uh, be my friend and like sort of shepherd me through like these things and like take yeah take me to that like fourth level in that meme (laughs) just like or like lead me towards there or point me towards there and uh, yeah I just I don't know I'm well I appreciate that I'm I I think I'm very grateful (laughs) well I think it's it's really easy and I think this happens a lot because we we have so many of these discussions online nowadays yeah to kind of look at me, a picture of me, and especially as a person of color, write me off as just being an angry person. And I get angry when I see people being treated poorly. That yeah. I, I feel that very deeply. I don't feel bad about that. But I like to think that I'm not an angry person. And so much of the reason why I love this music is because it's such a loving and uplifting community. And, you know, I had a lot of trouble racially 
everything else at my college. And when I was yeah. like, oh my god, this is terrible, I'm going to drop out, blah, 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 I could like run off to Syracuse or Ithaca and hang out with my old time friends, yeah. and that made it better. I'd run to West Virginia sometimes, and it would make it better. You know? it's I owe this community so much specifically as a person of color in addition yeah. to just a person, a musician who loves this stuff um, that I I don't feel angry man, I love this, I yeah. love everyone who plays it And <laughs> well the, the tracks I've heard from Reparations are um, they're, I mean I feel kind of emotional about it they're, they're some of the most beautiful old time recordings or recordings period I've ever heard and I, I, I really, really like them, and uh, I think, I think the, uh, I think it's all earned. I think it, it takes a special something to play this music, yeah, um, and to actually transmit something specific and something beautiful, um, because because it's instrumental music can be easy for people to project onto it project whiteness onto it uh to project whatever they want onto it um and uh i think you've done something really special and that you've taken this instrumental music with this rich history and you've asserted it very specifically um and um it's like i have a hard time being eloquent about it but if, if this ends up going, the interview portion on video, uh, I'm looking at the camera right now. Please get this when it comes out. Seriously, uh, please get it. Please, please get it. Uh, <laughs> please buy it and uh, <laughs> share it around. It's it's really, really good. And I think it's really, really important. It's really good and important. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have to say, like, so much of the credit for all of that goes to Tatiana. I mean... I definitely have... I play mostly banjo on this on this EP. Um, and I definitely... And I sing. Um, and I have designed... Or I don't know if that's the right word. I conceive of my banjo and vocal performance in a way that is designed to accentuate certain aspects of the music. Yeah. Um, and that is my voice, but definitely rooted in... Um, uh, like Fraser and Patterson and Will Adam and Joe Nodell Thompson. Um, so these historic black musicians who I really feel I learned a lot from when I was starting out because the chocolate drops were some of my first teachers. I spent yeah. like a week with Rhiannon and Hubby at the Augusta Heritage Center when I was starting out. And that's where I learned a lot of the licks and techniques that I use, um, especially on banjo. But Tatiana really put in so much time into working out every little nuance of every bowing and every ornament. And I just remember walking in, you know, obviously she can pick up her fiddle and start playing something and it just sounds good. Yeah. Um, and I was happy with it. I thought it was just like where it was going to be. And I yeah. was really excited about it. And I, we walked over apart to practice separately and I walked back to the practice room where she was and I heard her just going over Sid Hemphill's bowings. Yeah, and it was clearly not what she was used to, but just like insistently going at it to yeah. make sure she got every nuance that he did and played it with the exact same pathos that he did. 
And to work with someone who has that much sensitivity to the source material and to the tradition and to the topic that's yep. being addressed by the work is just such a privilege. Georgia Bells? Yes, yeah, Georgia Bells. Yeah, for those just listening, I'm just smiling and, and looking. <laughs> this is what looking I, affectionately hour, at Jake. An hour with good me radio. and I just reduce people to yeah. smiling and nodding. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the only appropriate response. Let me get to G real quick. It won't take me long. Okay, I'm going to come in the second time. Okay. Okay. Georgia Bells. <laughs> Georgia Bells. Manco Sneed Tune. Yeah. This isn't on the EP. This is not. Wiley yeah. Laws, another Manco Sneed yeah. Tune, is. Uh, this is just my favorite one to play on fiddle. Right on. Manco Sneed was a Cherokee fiddler from Western North Carolina. Thanks, Manco. Thank you. 
That's a spooky tune. It's really hard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well played. I can imagine it would be really hard. For those of you who uh, were looking at his fingers, he, you're just in standard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like a, a cross G tune or something, like a modal tune. Like when I hear those shapes, oh, I yeah. don't know. Doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm in sawmill. If anyone wants to play along at home, a G sawmill, man, so cool. Uh, okay, we got one tune left. Um, thanks so much for being on the show again. Thank you for uh, having me again. I have to have you back to talk all about your, I guess, complicated Native American uh, heritage and we'll see, or, or something, or some yeah. other topic. I don't know, um, but. Lots to talk about. So, what uh, what are we going to play last? Uh, Johnny Court the Widow is a Kentucky tune. And that you... I got from Travis and Trevor Stewart, and they got it from Bruce Green. And I'm not entirely sure where he got it. And you learned this on a boat? Yes. Well, okay, so I learned it... The first time I learned it, <laughs> I was at Earful of Fiddle, which is this awesome camp in Michigan. And I'd listened to Travis and Trevor Stewart play it a thousand times. So, I was trying to figure out G-tunes that I knew, and that one popped into my head, and I just kind of learned it from memory. Um, and then I, I did this thing called Sea Semester, uh, which put me on this ship, a uh, tall ship, in the South Pacific. And um, there was this one, uh, well, like three days, basically, um, where we were on our way uh, from Vava'u, Tonga, to Tonga Tapu, which is the capital of the Kingdom of Tonga. And... Um, we were coming into port and this low pressure system hit us and we've been like tracking it on the radar so we knew and i was on i forget if it was evening watch or dawn watch but it was like pitch black at some hour of the early morning and um it started raining so hard that the wind died completely and i couldn't steer the ship because it it works by water flowing over the rudder so if you stop moving you're just yeah free floating so it was an adventure (laughs) i was very frightened um and uh, went to sleep super exhausted. I was really tired, and um, I woke up the next day, and the waves were 21 feet. Um, they were huge, and uh, when waves get that high, um, they set up these lines all around the ship, and you have to uh, clip in with your harness anytime you go around so you don't fall over. Um, and I clipped myself in, and I was playing a little fiddle on the side of the boat. And this tune came back to me, and this was like the first time I was able to do bow pulses, was playing this tune, and I think it's because I was moving up and down the whole time, Yeah, <laughs> and I couldn't help but do them, <laughs> but I was playing, I was like, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, and then it stuck, um, and I played this tune like nonstop for the rest of the trip, so at the end when we put together like a little scene about our experience, uh, they had me transcribe Johnny Court the Widow, That's awesome. and put it in the zine. So, S two six nine prove the Robert C Siemens. If you're listening, this one's this one's for you. Trip down memory lane. Thanks again, Jake. Thank you.
If you want to hear Reparations, it comes out July 28th on CD, in iTunes, and on Spotify. So like Jake Blunt's Facebook page and look for the posts announcing its release. In the meantime, please share this interview on Facebook. Get everyone hype. Let's make this the first old-time album to break the internet. We can do it. This one deserves to get spread around. It's so good. If you like this interview, make sure to check out Jake's first appearance on Get Up in the Cool. It's about 30 or 40 episodes ago. I'll include a link in the episode description. If you find yourself binge listening to Get Up in the Cool, as some of you tell me you want to do, you might consider signing up to support the show on Patreon. If you do, many rewards await you, like on-air shoutouts, MP3 downloads, online banjo workshops, and weekly bonus tracks. This week's bonus track is Running Home to Doris, an original tune by Jake, which we play as a banjo duet. Just go to CameronDeWitt.com and click the button that says Patreon and sign up at a level that works for you. All right, as promised, here's a sneak peek at Reparations, my personal favorite track, We're Gonna Hunt the Buffalo. Thanks for listening, friends. Come back same time next week for more Get Up in the Cool. And seriously, buy this CD. (laughs) 